Thank you, Pastor Terrence. Um, I also knew him as Terrence <laughs> a long time ago. Uh, God is good to all of us. Good morning to everyone. And it is really wonderful to be back worshiping with all of you in the FCBC Walnut family. Uh, this is the place where many of the youth we had the privilege to serve are now the leaders. Uh, many of you are married with your children of your own. What a wonderful sight. Now, time has gone by so quickly because, believe it or not, it is already uh, 10 years ago that Jackie and I were sent out by this church to be missionaries through OMF at Singapore Bible College. So I want to thank all of you for the privilege of representing this church as we serve the servants of God. This is such a privilege for us. We serve those who work on the front lines of God's kingdom in Asia. Now, though I'm a teacher of the Old Testament and Hebrew, I have also been a student during this time in learning about how the culture that I grew up with as an Asian American can both help and hinder our understanding of the Bible. You see, one of the common cultural comparisons that I heard when I was growing up from my elders is that the overseas Chinese, of whom I am one, uh, ABC, born in America, are much like the diaspora, the scattered groups of the Jews. And like the Jews, the 50 million or so ethnic Chinese have sometimes been driven out from their homelands to places that they didn't necessarily find a welcome waiting for them. Like the Jews, uh, the ethnic Chinese have frequently started with nothing. And also like the Jews, perhaps they not only survive, but eventually thrive because these two cultures share some degree of an entrepreneurial attitude. And this is something that many of us will recognize even in our own experience. Now even so, I want to point out that there are at least three important differences between Jewish people and Chinese people. The first is quite trivial, which is that Jews don't eat pork, but have you ever met a Chinese person who doesn't eat pork? <laughs> I challenge you to find a Chinese restaurant in the San Gabriel Valley, which isn't a Chinese Islamic restaurant, which doesn't serve pork. That restaurant went out of business a long time ago, <laughs> okay? Now, actually, American Jews, they do go to Chinese restaurants on Christmas. This is a random fact you may be interested in because American Jews have nowhere else to go on Christmas Day. <laughs> Only the Chinese people who want to continue making money open their restaurants on Christmas. The second difference is much more important than diet, let me say this. And it relates to the way in which the attitudes of these two cultures handle their centuries of suffering. In their exile, the Jewish people were shaped greatly by the Hebrew Bible which taught them to embrace suffering and to accept shame as a way to know their God better. But when we look at East Asian attitudes towards suffering, these have been more influenced by classical Chinese literature and philosophy. From Confucius, for example, comes an idea known as the doctrine of the mean which concerns the need to avoid extremes in all things, including in your emotions. 
This idea pervades most of the cultures of Asia and not just among the Chinese and leads most Asians, if you are an ethnic Asian, culturally or ethnically, to suffer in silence. Not only this, but the cultures of Asia have also been shaped by the Buddhist idea that suppressing one's natural desires is honorable and will lead to gaining merit. So a culturally or ethnically Asian person, when suffering, will tend to suppress negative emotions and seek to save face in front of other people, even though they may be a Christian rather than a Buddhist, because these are cultural features. Those of us who are familiar with counseling Asians know very well that emotional repression is one of the great challenges that people encounter. And finally, the influence of a Buddhist as well as Hindu idea known as karma means that a suffering Asian Christian will instinctively ask themselves a certain set of questions when bad things happen. What did I do to deserve this? Am I being punished for a sin? And from these cultural influences, Christians who are culturally or ethnically Asian often face a double struggle with suffering. There's an extra burden to bear. Not only is it difficult to be honest about pain, the sufferer often deepens the pain by blaming themselves, even when they have done nothing wrong. Today my goal is to recover something that Jews and Asian Christians ought to have in common, but often don't, and that is the ability to live with this paradox of joy and sorrow and suffering together. Paradox is a key part of Jewish philosophy as well as Asian philosophy. Think of the yin and the yang playing off each other, existing in this perpetual tension. But interestingly, Asian Christians are inclined to flatten this complex relationship between joy and sorrow. This is something that we need to pay attention to and maintain right tensions about concerning our emotions because this is the theme of Psalm 126, our passage this morning. Those of us who are more Western or American in orientation will probably see certain aspects of the psalm more clearly, but neglect others. While those of us who are more Eastern and Asian in orientation will have some of the opposite tendencies. So please turn with me to Psalm 126 or fire it up on your phone, however you're accessing God's word today. Now Psalm 126 is, like many of the Psalms of Ascents, a really short passage. And it divides neatly into two parts. But I want us to notice that in Psalm 126, the neat structure is defied by the fact that there is a paradox built into the two halves of the psalm. The first three verses of Psalm 126 present to us what God has already done for his people who are suffering. But the last three verses, four, five, and six, 
present to us what God has yet to do for his people who are suffering. The head of the psalm is about the joy that people will have after they have experienced God's deliverance. But the second half of the psalm concerns joy which has not yet come or has been lost along the way. The sorrow that the psalmist feels because of what God has not yet completed in the life of the believer. And so let's take a closer look at how these two sides of the psalm contrast with each other and how they fit together. In the first verse of Psalm 126, those who have gone into exile would be the Jewish community in the 6th century BC. And they express their sense of amazement that their God has delivered them from exile and brought them back to the land. Verse 1 says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Now, why would they be so amazed? On one level, you could say this was exactly what their God had promised to do. When we look at the Old Testament prophets who had recorded centuries before that the people of God would not only go into exile, but they would come back, then even for these people who felt like those who dreamed, they, they should have known this. Why was it so stunning to them that God had simply done what he had promised? And this concerns the way you and I handle suffering. When we think about the fact that those who are in desperate circumstances have a hard time receiving any kind of comfort, it all feels like darkness imposing its will on you, then you find a hard time getting out. And this is especially so when we know that the dire straits we're in are those of our own making. We're facing the consequences of our own actions. We did this to ourselves. And in those places, it is very, very hard to drag a person out of a prison of their own making because they feel like they need to blame themselves for the horrible circumstances that they're in. But this is where our God, who is so full of grace and mercy and love, speaks to speaks to his people and says, what I promised you was not only punishment, not only a reckoning for all that you had done in going into exile, but even before the exile happens, I will bring you home from that exile. Because our God is a God who controls history. He's thinking several steps ahead, and he has power to make it happen. And this is what we see in verse 2. Because of this amazing promise that God has given to his people, not only to take them into exile, but to bring them home. Verse 2 expresses this sense of ecstatic joy. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Now when it comes to suffering, the Lord knows something that we, in our suffering, are bound to forget, which is that when we are still waiting for restoration. It is not simply going to be a matter of relieving our suffering, which is a concern to God. You see, if we take a step back, the fact that Israel in both kingdoms went into exile 
was not only a matter of justice and punishment, it was also a matter of God's own reputation among the nations because he had bound himself to this people. And the people knew Israel because they knew the God of Israel as well. So when Israel was sent into exile, it was because, as the prophet Ezekiel and others remind us, they had brought shame and reproach to the name and the reputation of their God. The nations looked at this people and they said, you, if you're a reflection of your God, are an embarrassment to Yahweh because we're paying attention. Now in history, what happens though, when a people who bear the name of Yahweh their God continue to suffer? It was suffering, it was their suffering deserved in the first place that vindicated the name of their God. But as they continued to suffer and experience their hardship, it also became a matter of their God's name and reputation among the nations. Just like Psalm 79 and other places tell us, in Psalm 79, the people pray and they ask, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Psalm 79, verse 9. Deliver us and atone for our sins. Interestingly, the motivation is for your name's sake, not just to relieve our suffering, but for your name's sake, because the nations who have been watching God vindicate his name by sending his people into exile now turn around and look at the same historical event and Psalm 79 verse 10 records their mocking cry. Why should the nations say, where is their God? And this is what happens when the children of God suffer. And you have people around you who know that you belong to him. At some point, it's not just about you. It's about your God and whether he has power or love adequate to save you. And it's for that reason that Psalm 126 tells us that when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, not only was it a matter of we were like those who dream, not only was it that our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy, but the last part of verse 2 records, then they said among the nations, the same nations who watched Israel go into exile, who mocked Israel in exile, they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Because Israel resides on a stage of history in which all the nations are watching to see what their God will do with them and for them. Where is their God? The answer to that question is, the Lord has done great things for them by bringing his people home from exile in the 6th century B.C. Not only for the sake of his people, but also for the sake of his name. And the people... Maybe they were starting to forget this. They echo the cry of the nations. The nations said, the Lord has done great things for them. And then verse 3 provides an echo. It's not for them, but the Lord has done great things for us. Verse 3, we are glad. Now at this point, this psalm, the 126th psalm, probably agrees with how most of us think of life with God. It's a matter of experiencing his promises, seeing them 
come true in our lives, and especially perhaps for a psalm like Psalm 126, part of a larger collection from 120 to 134, a psalm of ascents, because isn't that what life with God should look like? We go from low places of hardship and suffering, and he figuratively takes us up the mountain to where he is. We go from our valleys to our peaks. Isn't that what life with God should be like? You see, a lot of us have been given a particularly Asian way of approaching God, in which everything that God has already done for us is sufficient to put us into his eternal debt. And the only appropriate response that we would have to this magnificent benefactor who has given so generously to us is that we should show him gratitude. And some of you are saying, wait, but the Bible does talk about thanksgiving to God. Does it not? Of course it does. We could name many psalms like this. Most prominently, Psalm 30, Psalm 105. There are many, many psalms that talk about gratitude to God. And this, by the way, happens to be perhaps where those of us who are more Western will not fixate as much on the first part of the psalm. The second half of the psalm may appeal to us more. But gratitude for what has already been done for us seems like a cultural feature that is native to those of us who are culturally or ethnically Asian. We know that we stand on the shoulders of other people. We're part of a much bigger family. And because of what immigrant parents or what our culture or our communities have done for us, we understand that we owe our elders, God most of all, this unpayable debt for which we should be grateful. All of that is quite familiar to us. But here's the thing. If you're culturally Asian or ethnically Asian, you expect the psalm to end after three verses. You don't need the second half of the psalm because gratitude for benefits received is such a natural part of our culture that we can't handle the fact that there's a verse 4, a verse 5, and a verse 6 in the psalm. And herein lies the paradox of joy and sorrow in suffering. Because there is a massive tension between verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 6. We are used to ignoring the second half because in Asian culture, what is like the cardinal sin? If we had to name one, it would be something like ungratefulness for what others have done for you. Ingratitude is the main theme of every Asian television drama series that has ever been made. Because what keeps the series going to episode 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, there's always a major thread of ingratitude or unrequited love or betrayal that pushes the series along and keeps you watching and watching and watching. Because of that cardinal sin, 
we look at the first three verses and we say, no, we're not like that. We give thanks to our God. We have joy after what he has done for us. And let me tell you, this is not just restricted to Asian culture, but it reflects, I think, a Christian tendency to assume that God only wants us to show him our joy. This is such a tendency, in fact, that those of you who are sitting there with a New American Standard Bible in front of you will notice that the editors of this Bible have added a comment to summarize what they feel to be the content of Psalm 126. It's not an issue in the ESV because there's a different editorial comment there. But in the New American Standard Bible, it is only the psalm in its positive dimensions which is summarized as thanksgiving for return from captivity. Now that's not a wrong description, let me hasten to add. It's just that it's incomplete. It's only true of the first three verses. But the psalm goes on. The last three verses boldly come to God and remind him about the things that he has not yet done. Because life with God is never just a matter of experiencing joy for the things that he has already done. But there are things that he has not yet done as verse 4 expresses, restore our fortunes, O Lord. That happens to be the editorial comment in the English Standard Version, but not in the New American Standard Bible. Now, interestingly, what happens when we look at verse 4? Wait, we've encountered these words before, haven't we? In the original language, they're the same. Sometimes the NASB or other um, translations might give a slight variation in the rendering here. But in the English Standard Version, restore our fortunes, Lord. That's a request. The usual polite word in Hebrew for please isn't there. So it's an urgent request. It's a bold request. But didn't verse 1 say, when the Lord restored our fortunes? There's something about God's work in the life of his people which remains undone. And how is this possible? It sounds like that cardinal sin of ingratitude or ungratefulness, reminding God of what he has not yet done. It seems like the height of irreverence for us to say to God, even though you've already done so much for me, Please, Lord, I would like some more to echo that wonderful song from the musical Oliver Twist. And we imagine, coming from a traditional culture, more? How dare you ask for more? And then, of course, if you know the Broadway musical, poor Oliver starts to get chased around the room for his ingratitude, for daring to ask for more. And this is, I think, sometimes what a certain view of reverence toward God has taught us. We're not allowed to point out the things that he has not yet done because our cultural background tells us that what God has already done for us should be enough. We just need to be thankful and shut up. 
But that's not what the psalm says. Restore our fortunes, Lord. Restore our fortunes, Lord. One thing that we learn about the paradox of life with God is that the things that he has already done and the things that he has yet to do are frequently the same things. He has not yet restored the fortunes of the Jewish community to what they should be. Now, it it is true that for Israel to be able to pray two sides of this paradox does reflect something within the history of how the Jewish people returned from their exile. In the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, describing a situation in the 6th century BC, when the Jewish community came back from their exile to Babylon, it was true that they returned to the land. And this was a fulfillment of Old Testament promises that had been given in the prophetic books. And because of that, it is also true that they had joy, that they were, ability, they were able to express how their mouths were filled with laughter, and all of that. But at the same time, there was an incomplete aspect to that restoration. They came back to Zion, another name for Jerusalem, to be sure. But it was not a complete restoration, since the community there lacked at least two important things. The first thing was that the prophet said that when we came back, there would be a descendant of David to rule in this place. But who's in charge? Babylon became Persia. And so the people of God are still living under colonial occupation, while Persia, by all accounts, is better than Babylon because they at least let the people go back and even gave them resources to rebuild their temple there. But they wanted to be free and living under the rule of one of David's descendants, just like the Old Testament promised. And this is the other paradox, which is expressed in another psalm of ascent, Psalm 132. And if you count forward, it should be about seven or eight weeks from now, right? That you'll encounter Psalm 132. Now, some of us don't care much about politics, right? Whatever happens in the world around us, we couldn't care less. But we do care about something that happens to be the second problem in this Jewish community. Who's the leader? Who's the ruler? Doesn't matter. But I just want to know what I'm going to eat today. Some of you, as the 12 o'clock hour approaches, are already thinking of where lunch will be. There's no church lunch today. (laughs) So where are you going? And some of you want to make a quick exit because you know that other church people like to go there. See, we think about food. This is, of course, another cultural commonality with the people of God's word. But it's not just a laughing matter when it comes to their food. Because as modern and mostly urban people, probably not too many of us have been farmers before, we are inclined to forget what ancient and agrarian people had to face when they were just trying to survive. Their seed is also their food. So there's a crisis. You have to decide whether to plant or whether to eat. And when you have just gotten back to the land and you didn't have a harvest the previous year, you face an even more urgent decision because you have nothing left over, which was supposed to be both your food and your seed. 
So in that kind of a society, for a people who had just returned from their exile with only the packs on their backs, there is this decision. Do we eat this year's seed and place next year in God's hands? Or do we plant and go hungry this year, trusting that God will also provide for us? And so where you and I ponder what we'll eat after the church service as a matter of preference, for the Jewish community going back to a desolate place where they had not planted, the choice between seed and food is a matter of life and death. What are they going to do? What would you do in that situation? That's the dilemma that we find for the people as recorded in books like Ezra and Nehemiah. The people, you might think, oh, of course, they should trust God to provide food for them. But remember, their failure to trust the God who promised to give rain was the reason for their exile in the first place. Before the Israelites entered the land of Canaan, there was already a God there who was worshipped by the Canaanites. He is known as Baal. Sometimes in English, we call him Baal. But when the Israelites got to the land, they faced the same geographic realities of living in a land that didn't have rivers, unlike Egypt with the great Nile or Mesopotamia, Babylon, Persia, Sumer, those places with their fertile crescent of the Tigris and the Euphrates. Those of us who are going to Israel very, very soon, you think, oh yeah, well, Israel has the Jordan River, does it not? When you get there, you will see why it's impossible to get water from the river to other places because it's at the bottom of a valley and they didn't have freight trucks or piping to channel all that water back up the hill from the Jordan Rift Valley all the way into the mountains, the hills, and the highlands where people would live. The Jordan is a puny little stream compared to the Nile, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Now, by the way, those of you who go to Israel and you get to go to the, the Jordan, of course, you're going to pick up a stone from the ground and you say, oh yeah, maybe these were the stones that the Israelites left here uh, when they crossed the Jordan. I have bad news for you. Those stones are long gone. <laughs> and the reason is because tourists for thousands of years have been picking up those stones, <laughs> taking them home, and saying, oh, I have a piece. This may have been the stone that Joshua and the armies left here. So the Israelis are very, very savvy about this. They regularly dump stones into the Jordan River. <laughs> they regularly dump stones into the Valley of Elah, where David picked up his stone and he knocked Goliath down. Those stones are not native to that place because tourists like you have been taking home souvenirs for thousands of years. But even though your stone may not be from there, you can still say that you found it in that place. <laughs> the Jordan River is puny. The people rely on rain. And that's why the people have a special dilemma. There was a God who was there before Yahweh took his people there. That God promised to give the Canaanites rain. And when rain didn't come then maybe 
we should surrender to our annual temptation to worship Baal rather than worship Yahweh, our God. Because the Jordan won't save us. Now, for people who are returning to this land, how much do you think they could expect the God whom they had rejected as the real rainmaker to give them rain when they came back to this land? They offended this God. They were expelled from his land because they didn't trust him for rain. Because now that we can see from Psalm 126, with this background in mind, that the only water they can really expect to see in this land is told to us in verse 5. Those who sow in tears, without necessarily any expectation that water will come from heaven as Yahweh's gift. And this is precisely where a God who has already rejected his people, yet predicted that they would come back, says, I'm going to give you one more promise so that you can actually survive in this land. And that's the promise of verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy, because your tears will not be the only water to irrigate your crops, even though you offended your God, who was the real rainmaker, and he took down Baal. You should never have worshipped him in the first place because as we see in the Elijah story, the more Israel tried to worship Baal and get rain from him, the drier it got. And Yahweh is saying to Baal, everything you can do, I can do better. That's what's happening in the Elijah stories. So the people though, they don't know all of this. We have the benefit of history to say, yes, of course, Yahweh would bring about his promises. But for the people in the 6th century of that time, they know Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 40 that the exiles will come home. But they're wondering, what about Isaiah 35? When the prophet says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and bloom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The psalmist says, restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. Now, the land of Canaan, especially in the south, is much more dry than the north. Streams in the Negev is like floods in Southern California. But this year, amazingly, the high deserts became Huntington Library because of an abundance of rain. I really noticed as we were driving back after being away for a year that the hills were not as yellow as they were a year ago. <laughs> so you don't know these things because you're here the whole time. We drove back and we said, oh, is this Southern California or Northern California? I actually couldn't tell for a moment because it's usually so yellow and brown here. But this year we noticed not only was there green on the hills, there was snow on the mountain peaks. And that is what happens when God fulfills his promises. But the people don't know this. So they need this other promise, that those who sow in tears will see other rain and water come down from heaven because they shall reap with shouts of joy. This is what God has said to his people. For those then who face the choice between using their seed for sowing or for eating, the Lord says, go ahead. You're not sure whether obeying me and walking by faith is worth it. 
you will sow in tears because you see your food go into the ground. And maybe it's all for nothing if there's no rain. Maybe what you feel like you're doing for the Lord means nothing because how can you be assured of any kind of result? Now this is where those of us who are ethnically and culturally Asian need to pay very close attention because this kind of cultural background has given to us what some people have called an unconscious theology. What's your unconscious theology as opposed to your conscious theology? Your conscious theology is what you say you believe, your confession of faith. But what really comforts you and gives you assurance is your unconscious theology, what you really believe. And those of us who are ethnically and culturally Asian, we encounter a verse like Psalm 126, verse 5, and there is a little voice of unconscious theology that says something that this passage doesn't say. Especially those of us who have been conditioned to expect something karmic about the way God's world works. Because in karma, you reap what you sow. That's the basic metaphor when it comes to karma, cause and effect. Every cause has a proportional effect. Now I want us to hear how amazing this sounds in speaking to people in the original audience who are, like many of us, ethnically or culturally Asian. Now according to a purely Asian understanding of Psalm 126, what we expect is those who sow in tears shouldn't expect to get anything good because they sowed badly in the first place. They didn't go out with enough faith. So, as the saying goes, you get what you give. And that's how karma works. And that's how perhaps some of us who are ethnically and culturally Asian approach our own relationship with God. You get what you give. So it's all a matter of cosmic bargaining and negotiating. God, I'll do this for you if you give me this. But Psalm 126 verse 5 gives us an amazing picture of how God is gracious to people who barely have the faith to put the seed in the ground as opposed to putting it in their mouths. Those who sow in tears, not with any assurance necessarily that the rain will come and cause these seeds to grow, will reap with joyful shouting. This is the promise that God has made to his people. But this means that joy and sorrow coexist. And again, to those of us who are either ethnically, culturally Asian or inclined to think that anything but joy is unwelcome before God's throne, think again. Psalm 126 is telling us that what God wants most from his children, even more than obedience, believe it or not, is honesty. God already knows, of course, what we feel, what we think. But when we assume that God doesn't want to hear certain complaints or feel the force of our rage, or hear the sound of our complaints, 
you know what you and I are really doing in our unconscious theology? We're putting him in a box and saying, God, you don't actually know these things about me. And we're just going to pretend that you don't know. And I'm only going to give you what I think you want because of this unconscious theology. You have to sow with joy to reap with joy if you're going to get what you want. But that's not actually how the psalm goes, is it? Those who sow in tears will reap with joyful shouting. And so we have this paradox that joy and suffering go together. They're not just a matter of one after the other. They're not just a matter of different things that God might be doing so that the joy becomes sorrow or the sorrow becomes joy. But in the same place, in the same person, at the same time, joy and suffering, struggling with each other in paradox. Not because we are disobedient, but because we are trying to be honest with God that, God, this is how my complex and conflicted heart is feeling right now. And to a God who knows everything, there's nothing to hide. Because he welcomes us. And he gives us his promise. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And that's the beautiful way in which Psalm 126 concludes. Now, which half of the psalm do you prefer? Most of us probably like those first three verses because they set up a quite straightforward relationship between cause and effect. God does things, his people receive them, he gets the glory, I get the relief from my suffering. I mean, it seems to us that this would be a more appropriate and straightforward way to understand the way in which God works in the world. And let me tell you, that is frequently what God expects, but there's more. When God doesn't completely finish what he had promised, honesty before God involves saying that, God, I will have the faith to expect you to be true to your word. And that, my friends, is the difference between two different postures to God that might look very, very similar. The way I just described is the way of faith. Saying to God, you promised Sometimes demanding, always urgent, but the most important thing is being sincere. But there's another kind of expression of our attitude towards suffering, which isn't one of faith, even though it looks a lot like faith, which is, especially for those of us coming from an Asian or Eastern cultural orientation, to sit down, be quiet, trust God, and, as the Chinese expression goes, eat bitter. Now, for a lot of us, we mistake faith for that second kind of attitude, but it's not faith. That second kind of attitude is fatalism. What will be, will be. I can't change it, so I might as well try to cope by accepting the lot that God has given 
me. Now, what is the difference then between faith and fatalism? Biblical faith says, when you restored our fortunes, we were like people who dream, but, but restore our fortunes, O Lord, because I know you're not done yet, and I need you to be true to your word. It becomes fatalism when we expect that verses 1 through 3 are all we need. And I fear that there are many of us who are ethnic or cultural Asians who have heard something like this in Christian teaching that goes like this. Because of all that God has already done for you, this unpayable debt, which theologically we might even call grace, means that everything you can do from this point forward is a matter of just living your life with gratitude toward God. And on the surface, oh, how biblical it sounds. But what it really reflects is an Asian cultural expression of faith, which is little more than the kind of fatalism which we find in Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam. God is so far beyond me, I have no right to question him, so I'm just going to accept my lot. And I fear that there are many Asians who call themselves Christians who actually have an orientation towards suffering, which is more Hindu, Buddhist, and Muslim than what the Bible gives us, inviting us to, dare I say it, challenge God? Not because we think he's fallen off his throne, but because we know that he's still on his throne. But there is this circumstance of what you have not yet finished, God, and I can't just live with the momentum of what you have already done for me because, Lord, I need you. And not just the memory of what you have already done for me. That's not enough. Now, being ethnic and culturally Asian myself, there are probably many of you like me who don't like it so complicated, right? Right? This paradox is bothersome. We would like to return to a simpler picture. Life with God should be peaceful and calm instead of chaotic and painful, right? There are probably many of us, when we feel a sense of turmoil in our hearts, our immediate assumption is that, oh, I must be far from God. That must be the cause, because the effect is this sense of turmoil. It can be true. And conversely, there are probably many of us who associate God's presence with peace and joy. And I want to say, too, that this is biblical. It's just that it's not the whole picture. The whole picture, when it comes to life with God, is that joy and suffering can go together. There are still some of us, though, who will say, okay, 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 I can see this in the Bible, but I am who I am. You must just be talking about a cultural uniqueness of the Jewish personality that we Asians don't need to accept. We should feel free to accept or reject this. And you know what? I, I was trained as an engineer. Imagine that, an Asian engineer. And my preference, too, those of you who were youth uh, ministering alongside us, you know me, right? I'm more logical than emotional, more a thinker than a feeler. But let me tell you why I have come to realize that faithfulness to God 
is not a matter of trying to escape these paradoxes and pretend that life is simpler than it is, but is instead nourished by paradox and tension. And the reason is ultimately because Jesus himself was someone who blended praise and lament without contradiction. Now, if you want to just kind of assess where you are with God in your relationship between praise and lament, think about your favorite psalms. The praise ones come readily to mind, 23, 30, 34, 95, so on and so forth. If I were to ask you what your own use of the psalms, whether in personal devotion or worship would be, in the ratio of praise to lament, the two main kinds of psalms, what kind of ratio would be fine? Two to one? Three to one? Four to one? Five to one? It's probably going to be some form of tilting the scales toward praise rather than lament. But the amazing thing about God's word is that the biblical Psalter takes this ratio and it turns it upside down. Scholars have observed that there are probably going to be, instead of a three-to-one ratio of praise to lament, it's more like a one-to-three ratio of lament, of praise to lament. Because what God wants more than our obedience is our honesty. Now, one last thing about this. We, we think, no, 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 no. And now you're saying that Jesus actually lives this way? I think some of us have been conditioned by something that comes not from Eastern culture, but by Western culture. If you have had the privilege of walking through the great museums that record the paintings of Western civilization, it is, of course, Jesus who becomes the object of many different artists and their attempt to depict what Jesus must have been like. And almost inevitably, Jesus in these paintings is a quiet, tranquil figure who seems to have it all together. And as Philip Yancey points out in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, it's like Jesus is this mother bee, at the, this, uh, this queen bee at the center of all this action, and there are all these worker bees buzzing around him, you know, the poor disciples who are trying to hold his ministry together, and he just sort of stands back above it all, because he's got it all under control. And this is the depiction that not Eastern, but Western devotion has given to most of us. And this is precisely where we forget that Jesus was not someone who was perfectly composed when suffering unjustly or awaiting for his father to do what he had promised. Our stereotype of Jesus, meek and mild, has more to do with our cultural distortions than what the Bible actually says about Jesus' disposition on the cross. And like Psalm 126, like what the four Gospels present to us, Jesus was someone who blended praise and lament without contradiction. This is what the New Testament also tells us in a book like Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. And in that verse, note carefully that the faithfulness of Jesus' ministry in going to the cross is marked not only by his intercession, not only by his perseverance, but according to the writer of Hebrews, also by the emotional passion and the loud agony of his intercession. This is the Lord whom we follow. 
So to draw near to this Jesus who places all cultures under his critique, we also must approach him with that same sense of desperation that we need him and none other. We have a Jesus who lived these paradoxes, faithfulness and protest together, joy and suffering together, glory and shame together. This is the same Jesus who invites us to walk in his footsteps and do ministry and show his presence in the world his way. When you and I embody these paradoxes, there is a suffering world out there that is really tired of the simplistic and karmic answers that people are inclined to give. Oh, this is happening because you deserve it. Or, trust in God, this too shall pass. When we embody paradox, instead of easy answers, that world of suffering people will say, I want your Jesus because he and he and you understand how life actually works. Joy and suffering together in sorrow. Let's pray. Lord, we want to come before you as people who confess two things. That you are a God who has done great things for us. And because of that, our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And there are others around us who say, the Lord has done great things for them. And indeed, you have done great things for us. We are glad. But we must not stop there, Lord. Because with that first confession comes a second in which we say, restore our fortunes, O Lord. Be true to your word. Help us to realize that in your rule over the universe, you don't just give people what they give to you because you're not only a God who is just. You don't just enforce cosmic laws of karma, retribution, and causality, but you are a God who says to his people of little faith, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. You are so generous and more than just us coming to you in gratitude, in thankful obedience, you now invite us to join you in your work, to have enough faith to take the little resources that we have in our hands, and instead of hoarding them for ourselves because we don't trust you to provide for tomorrow, to say, Lord, yes, I will sow. I will invest. I'm gonna take a risk because of how you have promised that when we offer you this tiny bit of what we have, you're the God who goes ahead of us to give us that privilege of one day reaping with joy as well. Lord, I pray for this church, this lovely and privileged church of your people, that you would help all of us to embody these paradoxes in a world that is cynical about suffering. And sometimes Christians have perhaps contributed to that cynicism by giving easy answers to complex questions. And as we become people who walk with others on life's painful journeys, we pray together that Jesus would receive the glory, that we would be faithful 
to show forth the one who offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, that we would be people like Jesus who exhibit the same kind of emotional passion and loud agony in suffering that is, in fact, what you ask your people to show you honestly. So whether today, if we are on one side or the other of this paradox of joy and sorrow and suffering. Some of us have deep joy, others have deep sorrow. We ask that you would give all of us the vocabulary of faith, the ability, the permission, the encouragement to come before you and say, God, I've got both emotions raging in my heart right now as I suffer. Please come to me as I try my best to come to you. All these things we ask and pray. In the name of Jesus, who gives us both his suffering and his glory. Amen.